Mile Furlong Podcast is proudly brought to you by Tote. Bet with Tote and support racing in the UK and Ireland. Australia have the race that stops the nation. The Melbourne Cup. So what does that make one of the biggest races of the entire season in national hunt racing? The race that every trainer, jockey, owner, groom, every better wants to win, that every tipster wants to crack the Grand National. In my view, it's the race that stops two nations. Let's discuss it in our annual anti-post final furlong podcast, Aintree special, and we'll do so in the company uh, final Furlong Podcast legend, Mr. Rory DeLarge. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, my friend. Speaking of crushing it on the winner's front, who could we get on the show to be the perfect foil to Rory? To be the perfect person to be able to break down and analyze the Grand National and help you help me make a shortlist. It's got to be somebody who's an exceptional tipster, an exceptional analyst, and somebody who just happens to have crushed it at Cheltenham with a 78% profit. And that's using third best prices. Uh, It's always great to have him on the show, but particularly when the man is in such exceptional form, you're about to get his analysis for free. You can sit back, relax, take notes. Matt Toombs, welcome back to the Final Furlong Podcast. Thanks, Emmett. That's very kind. No pressure at all now, then. No pressure, my man. No pressure, but deserves. The Randox Grand National Chase. It's fair to say that this race has changed over the years. And as somebody who profiles, is that something that is frustrating or is it just that you've adapted to it? There are two sides to it. If you are profiling races whether you're using stats and trends or not if there have been lots of renewals say race like the champion chase hasn't changed very much for a long time you've got very long-standing trends to rely on but then everyone else knows them too and regardless of whether people say they like stats or trends or not even if they don't follow literal stats they have those sort of factors in their mind if they understand the race on the flip side if you've got a race that's radically changed as the grand national has then you might only have a few years of those trends and those trends are still building, but they'll be much less well understood and probably less well factored into the market. So hopefully we can identify one or two things that um, the listeners won't have necessarily cottoned onto yet. You've got some gold for us, to be fair. I've, I've, I've got a sneak peek at some of the stuff that you're going to say. It's absolutely superb. So you, you need to hear this. When Matt says radically changed, I assume you agree with that. And how different is the Grand National now? Uh, it's massively different, I would say. I mean, it's... Um, uh, I, I think if you just, just watched the, the races side by side, they don't, there's, a, there's a fair difference just in... in um, I think a, a beginner to the sport could, would notice reasonably um, quickly that the, um, uh, the race is a different feel to it. Um, straight away, the um, obviously the nature of the fences has changed a lot. The um, the trappiness of uh, of the fences on the inside um, has has gone as well. Uh, so one of the one of the big things that's changed is if you watch nationals from the um, 
uh, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, you'll see a a lot of jockeys heading to the outside at Beechers, or at least coming to the middle of the fence. And, you know, in the the first third of the fence, the inside third of the fence, you maybe see one or two jockeys taking the brave man's route and trying to cut the corner. And obviously there's a lot of ground to be saved cutting the corner at Beechers, and indeed uh, over the next two fences, Foynaven and and the canal turn as well. Um, But very few jockeys used to take that route because the risk was generally not worth the reward. Mm. Uh, and you're the, you're the likes of um, uh, jockeys who, who would frequently take the inside route um, occasionally doing that. Uh, John Frankham on Golden Rapper, uh, Peter Scudamore on Strands of Gold, right down the inside of Beaches. Both of them turned somersaults. Uh, two of the most spectacular falls you'll ever see in the Grand National. And the, the drop on the inside of Beaches was huge. It's about, it's about, you know, it was a good 10 foot from mm. top to bottom if you didn't get well out over the fence and that that doesn't exist anymore um and therefore those jockeys who who want to take the shortest route and want to want to save as much ground everyone goes around the inner now no one no one would dare go near the outside of beaches you're basically kissing your race goodbye um so there's there is a there's now uh they used to say the way to ride entry was to hunt around for a circuit and then ride a race uh, if you if you if you try to do that these days you will you you're beaten from the second fence um, you've got no chance of getting involved in the national these days by hunting around. Uh, you've got to get a position um, over the first three fences, or you're in trouble in the national these days. Uh, you've, you know, you have to be, you have to be reasonably um, close up uh, in terms of, you know, of, of the distance behind the leaders. Um, in the old days, you could be 150 yards behind the leader um, coming to beaches, and it wouldn't be that much of a problem. Uh, and that's just, you know, you know, depend, depending on conditions and who the leader was, obviously. But mm. um, you couldn't you couldn't go hell for leather from the start and hope to see four and a half miles out at, at entry over those big fences. Uh, whereas now, um, high quality horses can. And I remember um, uh, watching, um, uh, what's his name? McCain's horse uh, win it. Uh, Briggs. Ballad Briggs. Uh, and they went, they went stupid fast that year. Mm. Like, they're going ridiculous. They can't keep this gallop up. It was a ridiculous pace. Yeah. Um, and that and just showed that that was, that was basically the sign that there's no more hunting around at, at entry. You know, there were jockeys who rode that day who, who sat well off the pace thinking, I'll come through and come through and get them. Um, but they just, there was just no coming back. Um, and when you get high quality horses as well, you know, we're looking at, we look at nationals from the, again, from the seventies and eighties, there were some very good horses running. Um, but there were some very, very moderate horses running. Uh, some of the horses running in Newcastle today, for example, uh, would have got in the national in the old days, and would have been priced up at a hundred to one. Nowadays you can get a horse that's good enough to be third in the gold cup getting in the grand national with 10 stone, something who will start at a hundred to one. Yeah, um, and in the old days, one hundred to one shots were they were a million, generally speaking, uh, and of course everyone cites that that Foynaven won at one hundred to one, which shows that the outsiders have some sort of chance. But basically, you need you, you need an unprecedented pileup for a horse like Foynaven uh, to win it, win the Grand National in the old days. We talk about big outsiders, and when we do have massive priced horses winning the national in the old days, you pretty much needed um, some sort of carnage. For that to happen, we're, we're only two or three finished, and that's not true these days. You get absolutely top class horses who could go off in 100 to 1 in the national, as Mon Wom show. The time form description of the Grand National these days, uh, Matt Toombs, is a plastic national as opposed to the wooden national, and that's a reference to the fences. 
Plastic National. So what does that mean then? Does it mean that they're easier to jump? Does it mean they're easier to navigate? Is that essentially what we're talking about? Yeah, but also different to jump. So there's been a long evolution of the Grand National course, but the revolution in the fences came in 2013. And they've, though they look quite similar in appearance, the casual viewer um, might be forgiven for thinking they, they look similar, but you soon, when you watch the race, you see that they're completely different, as Rory pointed out. Until 2013, the fences had a wooden core, which was wooden stakes driven into the ground. They were dressed with birch, they were padded, and then they were topped with around six to eight inches of tightly packed green spruce, which is what gives them that famous look. In 2013, the wooden core was replaced with plastic, so that makes the fence less rigid, more give generally. But more importantly, with the overall height of the fences the, the same as they were before, the spruce topping now comprises about 14 inches and the spruce is much more loosely packed. Mm. So each time the fences are constructed, they'll be slightly different. No two years will be exactly the same. That's the same for ordinary birch fences on park courses. But generally, we're getting around 14 inches just being loose spruce that presents no real barrier and the horses just jump through it and push it out of the way without any impact on their trajectory. So given the Gordon Elliott saga, I imagine Aintree will err on the side of caution this year and make that 14 inches or so of spruce very loose rather than packing it tightly. So it's a completely different fence they're jumping now and there are big consequences to that. Cause of Causes was a tiny little thing. Bred for the flash. Gordon got him to win the cross country, but he also got him to be second in a Grand National. I'm not sure that a horse like Tiger Roll or Cause of Causes would have been able to run as well as they have in the Grand National 10 years ago, as opposed to now. I absolutely agree with that. And of course, Silver Birch um, ran in the cross country as well. Mousesar mm. King very nearly won the National after winning the cross country. Another Gordon's horses, bless the wings, was third in the national, having run in the cross country. Oh, shit. And it's, it's the nature of how you need to jump the fences now. And I think that's something that is underestimated as a fact of a punters generally. So if you're talking about the Gold Cup versus the Champion Chase, you different jumping styles. The ideal jumping style in a Gold Cup or a typical staying chase, pop the fences, get into a rhythm, conserve energy. Your horses tend to finish quite tired over staying trips. So if you stand off and take a length out of the field, even assuming you're not raining back in afterwards, as often happens, you're using energy that would be better preserved for the business end. And a horse like Best Mate was the epitome of how to do that. By contrast, in a speed chase like the champion chase where horses don't finish tired in the same way, the track advantage of standing off and gaining that length or two sprinter sacrosile can often be a worthwhile use of energy. And in the Grand National, I think now you want a totally different jumping style again. And jumping over the fences, red rum style, uses a lot of energy. Mm. Your Tiger Roll had that perfect style of jumping for the national. And it jumps much lower and it's through that loose spruce. And by jumping through that rather than over it, you lose a lot less energy without you having any real risk of, of falling if you're jumping at that right level. And you've got a better trajectory to land running. I think Ruby Walsh on the road to Chapman called it more of a hurdling technique. He and did. You might say that that it's more of a, a cross-country hurdle now. There are no banks or anything. But in cross-country races, we talk about the horses who've, who've taken their form into the Grand National from cross-countries. Those hedges, you jump through them, the top of them. You don't need to jump over the fences. 
And so there, there are consequences to that, as well as just the, the loss of energy of jumping over the fences. It's making the Grand National a bit more like, and don't overstate this, but a bit more like normal marathon handicaps. Because if the fences, there are lots of different heights in the Grand National, um, the chair's the highest at five foot two, but they're around five foot compared to about four foot six in park fences. Yeah. But if you're trying to jump through that top of that spruce, you're actually on a fairly similar trajectory nowadays. If you're jumping like Tiger Roll does to an ordinary chase, whereas you used to have a totally different trajectory of jumping. So that the difference is the horses are much higher quality in the Grand National than in other marathon chases, much higher than they used to be uh, in terms of the overall field. And the field's much bigger. You've got 40 runners, not, say, 20 in a, a normal marathon handicap. So the consequences, they go much more quickly. As Rory said, you can't hunt round for a circuit anymore. You're out of contention. So what does that mean? It basically means that the Grand National is no longer principally a test of jumping over formidable obstacles. Fences still take plenty of jumping, more so than ordinary park fences. But in the Plastic National, I'm looking for three main criteria. Firstly, a cruising speed to hold a position. They go so quickly on the first circuit now. Secondly, even more stamina because they've gone quickly. And thirdly, that efficient jumping. Have you got a horse that makes a sort of trajectory that will jump through the top of that spruce rather than over it? That, they're the sort of qualities I'm looking for now. Would you agree with that, Rory? Yes, um, and shows very much. You, you used to look for an ideal entry type, and, and um, that time was a lot harder to, well, I guess, because it's harder to find nowadays. You're just looking for a different kind of horse. Um, you could, if you really studied it in the old days, look for a horse who was a, who was a bold, safe jumper, not necessarily a particularly quick jumper, mm -hmm. um, but a horse that you, you knew would, um, uh, would be safe and a horse that would stay all day. Uh, and there, weren't, there really weren't that many horses in that, um, uh, in that bracket. And if you paid close attention to it, you, you'd have a, a short list for entry before you even had the entries out. Uh, whereas now um, there are a lot of horses who who could fit the criteria that Matt has mentioned there, and there are, there are some question marks about about whether whether some of them fit all the criteria, um, but they're not the easiest uh, criteria to match to horses before you actually see them do it because they're they're often doing different things, and you you have to basically apply yourself to how will this horse um, adapt uh, to the nature of of the Grand National, which is often different to the um, the races that they have been running in. Um, uh, you know, with with the exception of, of specifically looking at marathon chases um, and high class chases and knowing how horses will deal with a very strong gallop and uh, that kind of thing. I have zero interest in backing cloth cap to win the Grand National at four to one. If if you do, that's fine. I have no problem with that, and I I'm not going to put you off him because he may very well go and bolt up. Tiger Roll was different. He'd done it. It just it made sense with him. Am I talking complete and utter rubbish about cloth cap? No, I think you're spot on. And if you do want to back cloth cap, now is not the time to be backing him. So if you look at the prices you generally get in the morning of the race, the overrounds in the morning in recent years have averaged about 115%. The SP overrounds have averaged about 155%. So it's an obvious point to make, but if you are going to bet post declaration, bet in the morning of the race. And if you look, as you mentioned, Emmett, about Tiger Roll, he was 9-2 in the morning of the race. But he was a, a legend of a horse coming back, having won the previous year uh, and was, was well in as well. Mm. If you look at the, the prices available on the morning of the race in recent years other than that, 
The previous year, it's 12 to 1 the field. The year before that, 12 to 1 the field. The year before that, 11 to 1 the field. When Pinot de Ray won, it was 16 to 1 the field on the morning of the race. That's right. I forgot that. So, yeah, if Tiger rolls 9 to 2 on the morning of the race, there's no way cloth cap is anything like 4 to 1. Yes, he's a stone well in. But other than Tiger Roll, we've had another seven horses be eight to 12 pound well in in recent years, and none of them have won. So he's, you can lay him at 5.5, 9 to 2 on the exchanges. Now, we are in a unique year here. Betting shops are shut. Maybe the, the general public won't get involved in the same way. But if this is anything like a normal year, he is going to be a much, much bigger price on the morning of the race. And if he needs good ground as well, decent ground at least, if it, if it rains, and although the forecast's pretty good, the, the water table will be high. All it's got to do is rain decently on Friday and you're going to get soft ground. And then it's any price you like virtually. It'd be 14, 16 to one shot. So I would have thought he is, the way to play him is to lay him now at around nine to two. You're almost certain to be able to back him at a bigger price on the morning of the race. And at the very least, you want to be able to secure your stake money for the national. I think that's a fascinating way to play him. One problem you tend to have with um, uh, with Grand National SPs is that um, they have had a tendency um, to be on the low side. Mm. Uh, the um, the the overrides have been have been pretty hefty on the Grand National compared to to most other races, um, and. Um, this would be an interesting year, obviously, with no with no um, no one course market. Whether you got the same kind of mechanism, uh, I'd imagine we'll see a lower overround this year than we have done uh, recently. Matt, the overround is very important, but again, just for new listeners, could you succinctly just explain what the overround is and and how why it's so important to us betters? If you had a fair market, the overround would be a hundred percent. So if you had a two horse race and both of them were even money, both of them would have a fifty percent chance. You had the 250s up, it would be 100%. Bookmakers need to make a profit. So the overround is higher than 100% typically. And the larger the number, the bigger the bookmakers built in profit. So when I talked earlier about it being about 115% on the morning of the race in the Grand National, that's a, a reasonable normal profit. It's gone up to about 155% at SP when they've been on course bookmakers, which is frankly an outrageous profit. So Wait, sorry, can you sorry, repeat that figure? Yes, yeah, so in recent years, the average overround at starting price has been about 155%. What? So in the last one, it was 163% when Tiger Roll won the second time. 153 the year before that, 155. So you're, you're betting to an appalling overround then, which is why you don't want to be betting at SP. But for an anti-post point of view... If you've got, say, on odds checker, if the, the overround is on there, it then makes it a lot easier to compare the right sort of time to be betting, mm. whether you want to be betting at SP in certain races, whether you want to be betting in the morning of the race, anti-post and so on. Uh, and timing is so important in betting. In the last 20 years, there's only been four single-figure price winners of the race. And there's been outrageous scenes, uh, particularly with, um, God rest him, Liam Treadwell, 100 to 1 for Venetia Williams with Monmon, uh, Sue Smith, 66 to 1, Aurora's Encore. But plenty of 33 to 1 shots. Rule of the World was uh, 50s, backed into 33s. Really, Matt, you want to take a swing to, uh, at a horse at a decent price. 
I do, and, and often I'll be looking to back two or three win only in this, a bit like the potato race. We're talking about oh, these... Top man, top places. man! Final Furlan podcast lingo has just uh, invaded the brain of Matt Toombs, and we love it. <laughs> um, when you're looking at each way uh, places, then you do need to be thinking about the, the nature of the race, how uncertain it is, how likely you are to find a solid each way play. And you, you've got 40 runners here. Now, two years ago, there were a few bookmakers offering six places on the morning of the race. You can currently get four or five, depending on which one you're going for, anti-post. But that's six places out of 40, not six places at the festival in a 20-runner handicap. So there are, if you've got a really long-priced horse, I can kind of see it, and I'll talk about one of those now. But for a lot of the horses, if you're backing a 16, 20-to-1 shot, personally, I think the maths is back two of them and split your stakes win only. But if you want to take a swing at one that's at a really huge price, then one I'm interested in who's uh, 80 to 1 with one firm is Alfred Isobo. So he's got plenty of back class. He won the Galmoy, finished second to Thistlecrack in the Stayers Hurdle. Uh, he's won a couple of graded races over fences. But he was a really eye-catching third in last season's Beecher off 159. And in the Gordon's start season Racing post stable tour, he said, I was delighted with this prep for the national last year, and it's a pity it didn't go ahead. I can see him running well in it this season as he has all the right attributes. So he's going to get the sound surface he likes. He's actually the two runs he's had on decent ground this season, he's performed fairly well at. He was last in the grade one at Down Royal, but he's only beaten 13 lengths. And then he ran a blinder to be fourth to Tiger Roll in the cross country. He was no match for the winner there. Mm. But he got within four lengths of Easy's Land, and given he had no experience over cross-country courses, um, particularly at Cheltenham, and that's been so important generally, that was a cracking run. And he's seven pounds lower off 152 than he would have been last year. Now, he is 11. He was originally in the sales. So, you know, you wonder whether he's just not as good as he was, but they have withdrawn him. So I'm hopeful that that run at Cheltenham has meant that they think he's got some sort of chance. And at that sort of price, as you say, you can have a swing at one. And he'd be one of the few I would play each way because the quarter of the odds. So you're getting 20 to one a place. But he also comes, though, from a race that you feel is extremely important, the cross-country. The good thing about the cross-country is, particularly at Cheltenham, it's a bit different at Punchestown and other places, the cross-country at Cheltenham is shoehorned into the middle of the tracks and it's very tight and sharp. There are very few opportunities to gallop until the business end. So they go slowly and they don't have hard races when the ground's decent. You think, oh, a three-mile-six race as a prep run three weeks beforehand. Don't fancy that. But in the cross-country, because of the pace they go, they don't tend to have a hard race. As we've said, Tiger Roll's done the double twice, cause of causes, bounces are king, bless the, the wings. So it's, it's been a really good trial. And though he was well beaten, he finished near Easy's Land. Some neck also deserves a mention because he finished just ahead of him. And those four were miles clear of the others. And what I don't like at Cheltenham too much is a horse who's had a really hard race over fences. Mm. So if you look at the, the last 20 renewals of the old Wooden National, only five horses have run at the Cheltenham Festival that season. And the last two had either run in the cross-country Silver Birch or over hurdles, don't push it. Now, in the literal sense, the new Plastic National, four of the seven winners have run at Cheltenham. But Tiger Roll, twice in the cross-country, Pinot de Ray over hurdles again. Only many clouds have run in a conventional chase when sixth in the Gold Cup. Um, and as we said, that was four weeks rather than three. So I prefer either horses that are bypassed Cheltenham and targeted 
Aintree, or that have run there in a cross-country or a hurdle race where they haven't been given a hard time. If you looked at a race like the Kim Muir, you'd say Chantou Flyer, Hold the Note, Plan of Attack, all ran well there, and it's kind of eye-catching runs. But that wouldn't be my idea of the right sort of prep for a Grand National. More from Rory and Matt in a second. First of all, the Final Furlong podcast is proudly brought to you by Tote, looking to bring pool betting back to the masses with better value, brilliant bets, and that slick new app. And with the Tote guarantee, you will never be paid less than SP on win bets. And of course, if the pool pays more, you're getting the bigger price. More gravy all round. It's also never been easier to place your favorite bets online, be it the app or via tote.co.uk, including the PlacePot, Scoop6, Exactas, Trifectas, and the all-new Tote Survivor, where the aim of the game is to be the last person standing. Importantly, when you're betting with Tote, your money is going back into supporting the sport that we all love at a time when racing has never needed it more. And of course, Tote aren't a bookie. They will never close down winning accounts or stop you from having a big bet. So remember, winners are more than welcome. If you haven't got your account yet, now is the time. Join Tote today and enjoy a risk-free bet on any of their pools Terms and conditions apply. Also, our good friends at Weatherbees, some more Final Furlong Podcast gravy for you because they've just released their flat horses to follow for 2021. And if you bought Paul's content of jumpers to follow or of the Cheltenham Festival betting guide, then you know that this is a publication, a PDF or a book that you need, you decide. So from classic contenders to hardened handicappers, the Weatherby's team, with help from Paul Ferguson. That's right. Paul Jumpers Ferguson has written about the flat, but some really good stuff. Run the rule over more than 40 horses who look ready to win on the flat in 2021. Complete with a dedicated two-year-old section, Paul Ferguson's five to follow, and informative editorials exploring first-season sires like Caravaggio, classic contenders, sales toppers, and so much more. Weatherby's Flat Horses to Follow is the essential guide for any flat fan. Weatherby'sshop.co.uk is the site, and that gravy, we got you covered. Three pounds off either the print, digital, or both print and digital bundle. It's entirely up to you. Weatherby'sshop.co.uk flash 21, that's lowercase, F-L-A-T, Two one and the gravy is yours, courtesy of ourselves and weatherbees.co.uk. All right, back to the show. So when it comes to the age profile, why is it that horses who are aged seven seem to struggle in the Grand National? Yeah, of all the trends I'm expecting to build, because we've only had seven plastic nationals so far, so I think age and experience is probably going to be the biggest one if I was going to make a guess. Mm. And I think that the national is going to come a little bit more like most class one handicaps where young unexposed horses that are improving do so well. When the national was fundamentally a severe test of jumping, it unsurprisingly favoured horses with plenty of chasing experience. And maturity was crucial too. You mentioned age. Between 1975 and the last wooden national in 2012, there were twice as many 12-year-old winners as eight-year-old winners. There were six 12-year-olds and eight, and only three eight-year-olds. But we've had three eight-year-olds in the last five renewals. 
And the last double-figure age winner was Pinot de Ray seven years ago. So I'm expecting that, that shift to younger, uh, less experienced winners to build. No seven-year-olds won since the Dark Ages, but I wouldn't be counting that against the likes of Secret, Secret Reprieve. But what I would count against him is a lack of experience. He's only had six chase starts. He's only had nine races in all. The least experienced chases to have won the Plastic National were Many Clouds and one for Arthur. Both had had 10 chase starts. They'd had 19 and 18 career starts, respectively. So overall, we're about twice as experienced as Secret Reprieve. And I'm not expecting the National to start being one of those big handicaps that's won by first season novices, much less those with the minimum three chase starts to qualify. It's still a different race. I think a higher level of chasing experience is still going to be needed. And I want to see a horse with secret reprieves, inexperienced profile win before backing one. But where I am expecting the National to become more like typical class one handicaps is with second season chasers doing really well. They'll probably have been aggressively campaigned by modern standards to get plenty of runs under their belt. But before Tiger Roll's second victory in the last renewal, the previous five winners had all been second season chasers, but with 10 to 16 chase starts under their belt in just under two seasons. In the old Wooden National, only one of the last 10 winners was a second season chaser. So if I, if I was going to put up one building trend that I think is likely to be under bet, it'd be for second season chasers. I wouldn't be putting a line straight through horses, but... The more experienced chasers, I think Hold the Notes had 10 runs. He's running quite a few good quality contests. He ran in the last year's Novice Handicap Chase at the festival. He won in the Kim Muir this year. So that Kim Muir preparation for me wouldn't be ideal, but he has got a bit more battle hardened um, and he's had 15 runs overall. So I certainly wouldn't put anyone off backing seven-year-olds. I don't think that that, that is an issue anymore. But I would want to see horses who'd had a decent amount of chasing experience if they were young. And what about 12-year-olds? I think those sorts of horses, they, they would have been the sort of horses that would have been very much on my radar, one, winning races like the Scottish National in the old Wooden National, where maturity and being battle-hardened and being able to jump over those fences was much more important. I'd be less keen on them now. And not just on age grounds. I think one of the key things here is the pace of the race. Mm. Sort of horses, providing you've got a sound surface, I don't want a horse like Lord de Manil, who on paper has a very attractive profile for this, but he's already run as a young horse in five marathons through the mud. And if you get a sound surface, I just don't think he'll be able to, able to hold his position. And I think that will also apply to some of those veterans you've talked about. Rory, how do you feel about the age profile of the race then? So Matt saying that uh, seven-year-olds, this is, a, this is the year yeah. where that could change but that yeah, the, really old, the older horses, horses to be a little bit more cautious of. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. If you, you know, I, I, one of the most interesting things looking back on the National, if you're looking at it fresh, uh, understanding a lot about, about um, jump racing, it is surprising um, how well older horses have done, have, veterans have done in the National um, over the years. Unle you know, unless, you're, unless you've seen that in the first place, in which case you're not surprised at all. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting that horses who are sort of um, 10, 11, 12 have done very well in terms of, of um, hitting the frame in the Grand National over the years. You would have thought in, you know, in, most, in most big handicaps, you're looking at, at analysing trends. The first thing they'll tell you is kick out anything over 10. Mm. Well, horses over 10, you know, can't be winning this big handicap chase because they're just, you know, they're too exposed and they're vulnerable to well-handicapped horses. Handicapping is not that important in the Grand National. 
um, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and this is why, again, Matt makes a very good point about cloth cap. He's absolutely thrown in. If this, if this was a 20-runner uh, handicap chase um, at Doncaster or at Newbury or whatever, yeah, he would deserve to be the price that he is. Um, but the Grand National is not, it's not a race where, where uh, just being thrown in uh, is enough to, to give you a massive advantage. Obviously, you'd, ra- you'd rather be £7 or £10 ahead of the handicapper um, than the other side. Um, but that hasn't been enormously important and therefore exposed horses uh, who would normally be um, be vulnerable to um, to well-handicapped younger rivals. That hasn't been an issue in the Grand National historically until recently. Uh, it, it will it, it will become more of an issue. But even then, I think, uh, as, as Matt has pointed out, uh, it still is an unusual enough race and, and a couple of aspects to it. The extreme trip, um, the different fences, uh, and particularly the uh, the size of the field means that knowing your way around is enormously important. Um, just being able to deal with um, uh, with the demands of the race uh, physically um, and being able to, uh, to to jump well at speed, all those kind of things, um, very, very important um, and therefore means that, that you still have to give respect to older horses who are no longer improving. As long as they have the quality uh, to get involved, I would still I would still give them every chance. I you know I don't know if we're going to see another thirteen year old win the race. Uh, we're heading back to the likes of, uh, of Sergeant Murphy uh, for a horse of that kind of age. There's been I think three thirteen year olds have won the national over the years. But it's in, it, it's it's surprising given that we're seeing five and six year olds win big chases. Um, that the last seven year old to win the national was back in nineteen forty uh, with Boxcar. Jesus, um, and, seriously, um, yeah. In fairness, you look at the national. You don't you don't see many seven year olds in it as a rule. There are more in the entries this year than there have been. Uh, when Tiger Rule uh, won won the last national we had, uh, the only seven year old in the race was Ramses Detaille, who um, who pulled up, but he his uh, his rein snapped. Yeah. Um, so you would you'd forgive that run. So there aren't you know you can't you can't look at a race like that and go, oh, seven year olds struggle in the national, don't they? I still think they probably will. Uh, as a rule, because it's difficult to be able to get the experience into a seven-year-old uh, at that kind of stage. But um, you, we are seeing um, plenty of, of uh, high-class horses able to show um, uh, good form at, at five and six over fences, which means that whenever they graduate to the Grand National, uh, seven or eight-year-olds, they've got more of a chance of being competitive. Um, you know, eight should be the ideal age, really. Um, um, but it hasn't been. I think I would tend to agree with Matt that I think we're we're probably going to s- start seeing more uh, winners around the age of eight um, than than we did historically. Um, you know, when I was a lad, I was always told, "Oh, yeah, ch- chases are only beginning to come into their prime at the age of nine, and that's when that's when they should be." And that's you know, we now think of horses as nine year olds. Oh, he's not going to he's not going to improve any now. Um, but we're you know we are. Gradually, the, the way steeplechases have been trained has, has changed in the last um, three or four decades. Um, so we should be seeing a little bit more of that. But it is, it's still, you know, it's still worth pointing out that I think the ten-year-olds, as a rule, will um, will outperform um, uh, seven and eight-year-olds as a group for a while at least. Um, and um, you have to understand why that is. And it's not just it's not just about the old-fashioned nature of the race. It's still it's still, uh, although it's shifting, um, the ability uh, to cope with the demands of the race is more important than handicapping. Um, whereas in a lot of 
you know, as I said, if you're analyzing um, uh, Labrooks trophies or, uh, um, you know, whatever big early season handicap chases you have, uh, you, you tend to say, you know, you need to concentrate on the younger horses because they're the ones who are going to be improving. Uh, you need to have this amount of experience um, to, to get by, but it doesn't tend to be huge amounts of experience. Whereas in the national, you know, it, it used to be if you hadn't had 20 runs over fences, you didn't have enough experience. Well, you had no chance. Uh, that's, yeah, and that's, that, that has definitely changed. But it's a, you know, but it is, it's, not a, it's not a sudden change and it's not an absolute change. Um, it is, um, uh, it's noticeable um, and it's gradual and still changing. Um, but bear in mind that there are aspects of the race that still favour horses with plenty of experience. Well, then what about weight? How important is, is weight? Because what's your thought process on the 11 stone 10 that Bristol Dem- Demise got to carry? Do we just go, you're out, son? No, I don't think so. Uh, many clouds, one off 11.9, tug roll, one off 11.5. Uh, this is a subject that punters get really fixated about mm. in the national as, as much as anything. Generally, you should be looking at handicap marks, not weight. There's this theory that if you get a big tank of a horse that's apparently well-suited giving weight away to lesser horses. We're talking about half a tonne of racehorse here carrying a few extra pounds. Um, sometimes that's that those horses appreciate, say, the slower tempo of a less good race they have to concede weight in. You know, if a horse is accurately handicapped, then under the same conditions, it should run to its mark carrying 10 stone or 12 stone. What matters is how well it is handicapped compared to the opposition, not the weight per se. There are a few exceptions to that. I think on, on bottomless ground in marathons, horses get tired. Races like the Welsh National, um, actual weight carry per se can be a factor. And I think it is a little bit here, but it, it's a small thing. If you're looking at this, you need to look at the, the horse's handicap mark. And as Rory said, in the context of this race, handicapping is less important. It's can you cope with the unique challenge? But as a general point, look at handicap marks rather than weight. What about form then over marathon trips? How important is that to you? Yeah, I think there's an interesting point about marathons generally. One of my tasks for the summer is to do a bit of research on this because I, at the moment I just rely on anecdotal evidence. Three miles to three miles and a quarter are, to me, staying trips. And you get a lot of the top races at that sort of from three mile three furlongs up is what I call a marathon trip uh-huh. because you get very few top class races you get virtually no graded conditions races if any anymore at that sort of trip and so they, they run at a very different tempo they get different sorts of horses running in them and often horses stepping up to marathon trips for the first time get under bet in a lot of those races there's people saying oh hasn't proved he stays yet I'd rather go with the tough grizzled performer but horses can generally only run in a certain number of those marathons. It puts miles in their legs. They lose their enthusiasm. So if you look at the, the plastic national, <coughs> the, the number of marathons, and I'm excluding cross countries. I'm sorry. It gets me every time. Sorry. <laughs> as a different type of race. But if you ignore those, the winners are running three, two, one, one, zero, one, four marathon chases. So I don't want some tip, tough, grizzled old warrior that's running stacks of them. As I said, the enthusiasm might have gone. The handicap has got a better grip of their ability in the context of marathons. And if they've been this sort of out-and-out stayer, and I mentioned Lord de Manil as an example of this earlier, mm. who's made their career in marathons, I don't think they'll be able to go the faster gallop in this. But the horses that have run in marathons 
um, they've generally, unsurprisingly, done pretty well on them before uh, coming here. So one for Arthur have won that season's classic chase at Warwick. But that's often a decent trial. Roy's uncle had, had run in that as well. Tiger Rold obviously won the Grand National before. Um, one for Arthur, uh, I've mentioned Aurora's Encore have been second in the Scottish National, rule the world, second in the, the Irish National. So quite often, those form in those really good races, we haven't got those in the case of the Irish National and the Scottish National this year, but those races can, can be a good guide to this, particularly a race like the Irish National, which is a really high quality event now. And tends to be a fantastic guide or at least it has been over the years but how much of a disadvantage is it to us betters that we ended up in a situation with a no grand national last year but also no irish grand national no scottish grand national no midlands we don't have that form to go on and when you look at a horse like borough saint who interestingly french bread uh, just for the the mention of it like i i said earlier on that i would have been all over him last year like as much as i Love Tiger Roll, and I would have loved to have seen him win uh, a third Grand National. I think he was nine to four. Like, off you go, son. You can run at nine to four. Um, I'm happy to just cheer the horse on. If I get chinned by him on the line, I will. I would have cheered on Tiger Roll. But Burrow Saint was a horse that I was really confident about. So were a lot of people. He stood out a mile. He hasn't really recaptured that form yet unless Willie is just building him slowly. But if he is, it's a piece of bloody genius. It's very hard to know, isn't it? In a completely unique situation. As you say, the, the Irish National, Scottish National, from the previous season, not really going back further than that, uh, have been excellent guides. And I imagine, if you ignore this year, will continue to be useful pointers. But quite whether Willie's managed to keep Burroughs Saint you know, simmering away and then bring him to the boil now... Uh, I wouldn't like to say he's a bit short for me, um, but he, he wouldn't surprise me if he won. Form in marathons for you, Rory. You can go back a little bit further as well. Um, I, I take your point that we had no uh, no uh, Grand National, no Irish National um, to look at. But yeah, I'd I'd, um, I'd prefer to have horses with form over three and a half miles, um, if possible. Not always. It's not always uh, possible. Uh, the, the, the great thing about having horses being given chances in races like that is, you can you can judge them on their failures um, rather than anything else. So if you've seen a horse who's got good form at three miles but tried over marathon trips uh, doesn't run to the same level of form, uh, and you're going back two or three years with that, I think people sometimes go, "Why? Well, yeah, well, he's older horse now, he's got more chances to stay in the trip." I'd be I'd be worried about that. Um, I'm very worried about it. Whereas there's a lot of horses now who who don't run at marathon trips, and you don't know how they'll handle them, um, and um, you know that makes it um, that makes them kind of hard to uh, uh, to weigh up. Um, I'm less less inclined simply to to rule horses like that out. Um, but um, you know you you get one or two examples in this race of, of horses who you know were capable of, of staying well. Any second now being the perfect example. Um, you, you look through you look through his his recent record and you go well hold on a second his best forms are two two and a half miles and uh, that's largely true through his career but of course he he um, he seemed to stay three and a quarter very well when winning the Kim Muir um, and he's one of those horses who has the stamina but he he's, he comes from a yard which believes in in running their Grand National horses over two miles yes 
and that's, and that's worked in the past. Yeah. Um. You know, Ted Walsh has trained a Grand National winner, and he he prepped for the national by running Papillon around sort of two two and a half miles. Even though he he did show that he stayed the he stayed uh, a marathon trip um in the Irish National um prior to that. Um. But you know, Ted Ted will still will step those horses back in trip, thinking it's it does them more good as Grand National horses running over shorter trips. Obviously, that's a that's a bit of a um a thorny subject at the moment but it's you know if you know your horse stays um running them over two miles i think is a, is a good thing because it gets them jumping at, at speed which which is good for their technique uh well i think horses who are constantly running them marathons um can pick up bad habits a is it's, it's draining on them anyway there's only so many miles that a horse has in them uh, much like a car you know you you, you know the, the longer you um the longer you push them um the more likely they are to have little breakdowns and and um and fatigue setting in um so therefore you know when you when you know your horse stays a trip and you want to win a grand national you don't have to keep running the horse over over something akin to the national trip uh in order to um to get the best out of him so i think i think um any second now is one of the most interesting horses in the race given given his campaign uh the worry the interesting thing about in the old days you, you'd have happily ruled him out because he can't jump cannot jump <laughs> But that may um, that may not be that that important because his um, uh, his jumping technique may just gel uh, at entry once he learns he can get through the um, uh, the top of the fences and he'll have been I'm sure he'd be schooled over national type fences at home as well. Um, if he takes to them, then that'll be absolutely fine. Again, although the national fences are bigger than, than the fences on park courses, um, a lot of the tracks that he's run at, um, you cannot take a chance with those park course fences. If you, if you, you know, take off too early or you clip the top, um, at a track like Leopardstown, you're, you're going to find yourself in a bit of trouble. Mm. Um, whereas you can actually, as long as you've got the balls to take your fences on at entry, uh, you've got to get pretty low to get in trouble. I have a look at magic, uh, magic of light when finishing second in this race two years ago. Oh. And she makes, she makes two of the worst mistakes I've ever seen any horse make at any race course. Yeah. And not only kept on her feet, but finished second in the national. I mean, she she landed right on top of two fences, and somehow got away with it. Um, uh, well worth looking back at that again. You can make mistakes. The thing that that puts most horses off is once you make a mistake, your confidence goes. You don't want to have a cut at the next fence. If you're if you're ignorant enough, <laughs> you can make mistakes at, at entry these days and still do okay, as long as you as long as you're happy to um, you know, if you're quick from one side of the fence to the other. Um, you can afford to take the, the occasional chance and get away with it, which you, you couldn't in the old days. Um, and But again, you don't really know how your horse is going to cope with that until you actually see them in the race. Um, so any second now, his jumping could let him down on the day. But again, if he if he gets in a, a reasonable rhythm early on, if he, if he goes through the top of the fences and realizes there's, not, there's nothing to be scared about, um, he's one of the most dangerous horses in the race. He's got the right, he's got the right blend of experience, um, uh, and ability, um, the right blend of speed and stamina as well. So you know, he's he's um, if cloth cap wasn't so blindingly obvious, that any second now would be the uh, the obvious starting point in this national. Um, but again, you were asking me about um, uh, about stamina mm. as a rule. Um, I just I'll just come back uh, briefly to something. I was just crunching the numbers on on uh, the plastic nationals <laughs> and the the age groups. Uh, just a very, very basic analysis of, um, of high horses performed by age based on percentage of rivals beaten. Uh, 
and this this won't really come to fruition uh, this year. The the best age groups in terms of percentage of horses beaten are thirteen and fourteen uh, in recent nationals. Now, obviously, we don't have anything of that age in this year's race, uh, but the two fourteen year olds who've run in the race beaten sixty six point two percent of their rivals, and the seven thirteen year olds beat sixty one point two percent of their rivals. Uh, the next group down, forty-two percent. So we're still seeing veterans outperforming the younger horses. Although, uh, ironically, it's not. You kind of think it's like you know, a sliding scale from top to bottom. There, uh, the worst performing group, surprisingly enough, are twelve-year-olds. Um, <laughs> with uh, there have been twenty twenty twelve-year-olds to run in the race um, uh, since two thousand and thirteen beaten 23.5% of their rivals. 10-year-olds, you'd, you'd almost expect to do best. 25% uh, of rivals beaten. 7-year-olds, um, not, not too bad in the grand scheme of things. 38.7% of rivals beaten. Only 12 runners, though. And that's worth pointing that out in terms of age groups. You know, how 7-year-olds can't win. There have only been 12 7-year-olds running in this race um, in the last... Um, in the last seven or eight years. That's a um, very important point to make. Uh, in terms of winners, uh, well, those figures are, are easy to hand, but three, three eight-year-olds, uh, two nine-year-olds, two 11-year-olds um, in, in those races. Um, but it's, I, always, I always find percentage of rivals beaten as a really good, um, a good measure, especially when you're looking at small numbers um, and you want to get an idea of how horses get on generally rather than just looking at winners. Winners can be a, a dangerous measure um, because you're you're basically eliminating most of your data. Um, so um, so finding other measures of how horses perform, I think, is um, uh, is is better. Um, looking at placed horses also beneficial there as well. Uh, obviously, you know, to be placed in national, you've got to run really well, um, and you're clearly getting uh, four times as much data as just looking at the. Uh, uh, the winners. Let's find out what the shortlist is. I am going to ask for your first selection, and I'm I'm really hoping that both of you are going to be doing what I'm doing, taking four swings at this. Matt Toombs, your first bet on the Grand National 2021. So start with, with the front of the market any second now for the reasons Rory has said. I echo all of that. Rory DeLarge. Well, I'll, I'll go roughly in price order as well, and... I would also say any second now. The shortlist not necessarily in uh, in order of value, but in order of uh, roughly in order of price. And I, th I think both of us um, would would very much respect the chances of cloth cap, but you know, absolutely. The point the point about cloth cap is you know you want to be you want to be waiting to the day uh, to back him, or indeed um, laying him now and backing him back either to, to to cover your bet or to engineer a bigger price to buy him if you if you fancy him. Uh, and you've got the you've got uh, balls of steel laying at nine to two now back and back at seven to one on the day, um, and you know find a way of, of essentially getting a bet at eleven or twelve to one, however you want to do it. Uh, your second selection, Matt Toombs. Milan Native's a horse we've not mentioned so far. He's a second season chaser. So the previous five winners, Barto Tagarol, uh, last time were second season chasers, um, and then not many of them are going to get in this year. Uh, he was. A good winner of the Kim Muir as a novice, busting all sorts of trends last year. In a pre-Cheltenham stable tour, Eddie O'Leary said that whilst they hoped he'd run well on the, the better ground in the ultimate, his target was the Grand National. So he'd have to jump a lot better than he did at Cheltenham. 
But he's a horse that I think is still potentially well handicapped. He's got quite a bit of class and I think he'll stay the trip well for a horse that isn't proven over it yet. I'd be more confident than, than him than many. He's around a 33 to 1 chance now. Second run after a wind operation as well. Rory, for you. Uh, Disco Rama, you know, he's ideal for it. There is the issue. He has been off for 146 days before the race. Um, which is a little bit of a negative. Looked ideal for this race for a couple of seasons. I know Paul thinks he's badly handicapped in Ireland. You, you've got to be gold cup class to win to win the top handicaps. But he'll have 10 stone six in a Grand National, and he's a horse who's three times been second at the Cheltenham Festival. Um, stays four miles well. Um, and the low Moses forms on heavy ground, he handles it a, a bit quicker than that as well. So he'd have to be on your shortlist. Matt Toombs, your third Grand National bet. So taking a swing up one at a huge price, Alpha de Zobo, that cross-country form. That's what I'm talking about. You can get 80 to 1 about Alpha de Sobo. Follow that, Rory DeLarge. Uh Mr. Malarkey, for Colin Tizard, from a Grand National family, um, has has generally been running pretty well this season. Won on heavy at Ascot in, in December in the old uh, SGB um, and ran at least as well. Win third in the uh, Close Brothers Handicap Chase last time out. His granddad's brother ran in the, ran in the National. His great-great-great-granddad ran in the Grand National as well. Um, so there's plenty of, uh, of entry pedigree there. What a way to end his, his training career as he hands the reins over to his son, uh, Joe, at the end of the season. So Mr. Malarkey, who will be having his second run after a wind up, and he is 50s at the time of recording. Matt Toombs, I think it's four you're going for, isn't it? So this is your last one. Okay, so the last one then, uh, the first three I'll put up on the basis of a, a reasonably sound surface, here, heavily watered, good to soft. If we were to get soft ground and with the high water table, if the rain that isn't forecast and we got unforecast rain just before Cheltenham comes and there's soft ground, then I would very much agree with Rory about Discarama. You boys are agreeing twice. Though, as Rory says, he go, he'll go on decent ground, but I, I, I would be, he'd be one I'd definitely be waiting for because I think if you did get some rain, it would really help his cause. It kind of felt to me that you would want more that you wanted to mention, Matt. I, I doubt he's going to get in, so I was perfectly happy to leave him, but if at a huge price, I think he's about 100 to 1. If he were to get in, he's number 57, the Hollow Ginge, who was a good for staying on fourth in the Hennessy on good ground. Uh, behind cloth cap and he's got basically a pound a length swing for that so I, I doubt he'd get in off 140 the last couple of years it's been 142 but we are in a totally unique situation here what's going to turn up and what isn't you can't rely too much on what's happened in previous years uh, and you can get obviously not run no better he gets ballasted out and get your money back anyway mm. so he's another one at a, a wild swing wouldn't surprise me if he ran well if he got in whether you agree with the lads or disagree with them they have given you the steer in the right direction the steer that you need for the biggest race of the season thanks so much for listening thank you for the kind words on social media God bless the final furlong podcast is proudly brought to you by Tote try Tote today and get a risk free bet on the pool Thank you.